1 John 3, 11 through 24, we're going to talk about life-giving love tonight. Let me recap a little bit. Uh, throughout the book, John has been drawing a distinction between false brethren and true believers. So he talks about the antichrists and us. He talks about those who are life, those who are death, those who are in light, those who are in darkness. Uh, and he's encouraging the readers to maintain that distinction. He's saying, you are different from the world, so live like you're different from the world. And really, it's not so much a, a reprimand. It's not a reprimand at all, actually. He's saying, this is how you know the difference, and this is who you are in Christ. And so tonight, we're going we're gonna to keep going with that theme. Last time, he talked about how the return of Jesus is our motivation, and, to, and he ended by talking a little bit about love. Now, 1 John talks a lot about love. Um, and so the Bible talks a lot about love. We're going to talk a lot about love. So some of this might uh, seem like it's repeated, but I said this at the beginning, right? First John kind of spirals in how he talks about it. He comes back to the same themes and the same ideas over and over again, uh, maybe a little different than how Paul writes, which is very kind of structured and orderly, you know? Tonight we're going to discuss how love is the great mark of those who belong to God. So we're talking, remember, the distinction between the world and the church, and the big distinction is love and how even our love draws the ire and the resentment of the world. And then we're going to get into verse 19 through 24, which is some of my favorite verses in the Bible, uh, where John talks about assurance of salvation and how we trust God more than our own hearts. And uh, it's really great because he talks about the love of God that we are supposed to show to other people. And then he reminds us in verses 19, 20 and, and following, he says, and don't forget, guys, that's the same love that God has shown to us. Right? God isn't going to ask us to do something for each other that he hasn't already done for us. I think a, a good reminder before we get into this is what Jesus said in John 13, 34. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. If we truly belong to God, then our lives should be characterized by great love. And because we belong to God, we receive that same great love from him. So let's start in verse 11. We'll go down to verse 13 to start off. And he says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So he ended verse 10, the previous section. Remember, the, the, the Bible is not broken up like it is in the paragraphs in your Bible. It was all one letter. He ended by saying, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Saying, if you do not love your brother, you are a child of the devil, and you're not a child of God. Which, this makes sense. If you're going to talk about not loving your brother... Uh, we're going to talk about Cain and Abel, right? <laughs> that makes sense. Now, the, the question we might ask is, wait a minute, how can me not loving my brother say that I'm not a child of God? What does my relationship with somebody else have to do with my relationship with God? Well, he connects it to the very foundation of the gospel. This is the eighth time in verse 11, the eighth time in the book of 1 John, and it's actually the last time he's going to say it, where he uses the phrase, from the beginning, you should go back through uh, the book of 1 John, and every time you see that phrase, from the beginning, highlight it 
or underline it. He uses it a lot. John, as a writer, uses a lot of the same phrases and the same words over and over again. You notice he talks a lot about abiding, talks a lot about love, about light and darkness. From the beginning is another one. He uses it a few times in 2 John, uh, a couple times in the Gospel of John. Remember, the Gospel of John opens by saying, in the beginning, right, was the word. He uses that phrase a lot. And uh, in the Greek, it's ap arches, right, from the beginning. And it's referring uh, to the, re- the, the reader's reception of the gospel. He's like, this is something that you've been taught since day one. I'm not coming up with something new, right? But it also goes beyond that. This has been the will of God since even before you knew about the gospel. We've already seen it in chapter 2, verse 7. He said that loving each other is no new commandment, but it's been the foundation of the gospel and God's revelation from the beginning. Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love from the very beginning has been God's commandment to us. You remember in Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40, when Jesus is teaching in the temple, one of them, a lawyer, I don't think attorney, right? A lawyer is somebody who studied the law of Moses, right? A lawyer asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So even Jesus said the foundation of everything that God has said up to that point, and we could say even today, is love God and love people. Love your neighbor, love God. So when he says, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, you understand what he's saying. Because remember, he's talking about these antichrists who had, had been bringing false teaching into the church, and apparently they were loveless people. This is really a very common thing. People who are pushing some kind of false doctrine, false teaching, they're not nice people, right? Every cult leader you've ever heard of, every, every person who's going to try and steal people away from the truth, there's no love. There's a lot of pride, but there's not a lot of love. And so John is like, how can you say that you belong to God if you don't even have love? We've been talking about love since the very beginning. And he's going to reach back almost to the very beginning for an illustration of this point. He's talking about loving your brother. And those who do not love their brothers are children of the devil. And so he's going to talk about Cain and Abel, right? We should not be like Cain. There's a, that could be the lesson right there. Don't be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. You all remember this story. You can turn there if you want. It's Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Uh, the story of Cain goes from verse 1 down to verse about 25. I'm just going to read the first eight verses here. So we'll skip the part where God uh, reprimands Cain, but we'll get to the, the important part for our sake. It says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. 
So we're not sure exactly what happened here. Uh, it could be that the sacrifice was taken up in fire. We see that happening in scripture. Um, it could be that there was still enough of a communion with God at this stage that uh, they understood the voice of the Lord. Or We're not sure exactly what happened. But they, what did happen was Abel's sacrifice was accepted, Cain's was not. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? And you can picture Cain answering back to the Lord and grumbling and muttering under his breath. And God says, But if you do well, will you not be accepted? You picked Abel, and you didn't pick me. Mom's always loved him best. Why, now you don't accept me either. And God's like, look, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you don't do well, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. And oh boy, was sin crouching at the door right now, right? Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So Cain spoke to his Abel, his brother, and apologized. No. <laughs> when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So you've heard this story since you were a kid, most of you probably. We used to have flannel graphs when I was a little kid. You had the, gr the green half of the flannel and the blue half and the little felt things that you hung on the thing and Cain and Abel, right? And there was happy Cain and then when God didn't take a sacrifice, you took it down and you put up angry Cain, right? But it, this is such a perfect example of, of bitterness, of jealousy, of resentment, right? Because he knew that Abel was accepted and he was not. Now, it, it, it's a mistake, I think, to read that passage and say, uh, Cain was supposed to bring a sacrifice of meat, not a sacrifice of, of produce. You know, right? he, Cain was a worker of the ground. He brought fruit. Uh, Abel was a herdsman, and he brought a sheep. Well, he should have brought a sheep. That's, the pro that's not what's going on here, I don't think. The, the problem is his attitude. You know, <laughs> And God's like, I don't accept that because your heart is out of line. And Cain's like, what do you mean my heart's out of line? And God's like, there it is, right there. That's what I'm talking about. He resented his brother. And John says that Cain was of the evil one. He was from the evil one. Of course, a reference to the devil, which matches what he said in these previous verses, that the devil has been sinning from the beginning. There's that phrase again, right? And John explains what happened here. Cain killed his brother out of jealousy. It says, because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Abel was accepted and he was not. And God even told him to his face. He didn't try and like soothe Cain and be like, Cain, no, I love you too. It's okay. He's like, yeah, I accepted Abel because he did the right thing. You're not doing the right thing, Cain. So get a handle on that. Sin is after you, man. You got you to rule over this. God was honest with Cain. But rather than deal with it and do the right thing and grow and be better and overcome the temptation, Cain said, you know what? I'm just going to eliminate the standard of comparison. If it's between me and my brother, and my brother's better than me, I'm just going to kill my brother. What are you going to compare me to now? It's destructive. Bible talks about bitterness as a root. As a root. Man, when you have to get rid of a plant, you better try and get rid of it before it gets too big. There's nothing more disheartening than when there's a nice good weed there's a, there's a, it's a great feeling when you, there's a big old weed and you pull it up and the roots all come out at once and like there's just a big clot of dirt. Maybe that's a man thing. I don't know. It's like, aha, I have vanquished the ground, right? But the worst feeling in the world is when you go to pull it and it pulls, but it breaks just underneath the dirt. And you know in a few weeks you're going to have to pull that again. There's a weed in my yard and it's like, it, 
it was not my fault. When we bought the house, it had grown up and it was already pretty thick. So there's one day I'm like, I'm going to get rid of this thing. I cut it down like to the roots. And I thought, okay, now all I got to do is just dig it out and get it out. I broke a shovel trying to get this thing out. And I decided, you know what? I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> but that's the thing about roots, man. You can get rid of everything that you think is there, everything that's visible, but the root goes down deep. And the longer you let the root grow, it gets stronger and stronger. And it's much harder to get out without tearing something. The Bible calls bitterness a root. Resentment is a root. Jealousy. It grows and it starts to bear fruit in your life when you let hate grow in your heart. This is what Cain did. He resented his brother. He was jealous of the fact that his brother was doing well. And he let it fester in his heart so that when push came to shove and he had to make a decision, he made the wrong decision. Don't get caught in the trap of getting mad over what someone else has. Don't get jealous of other people. Don't be envious. Now, I'm going to be clarify here. Because we think jealousy, we immediately think possessions, like stuff that people has, right? I'm not jealous of that. It doesn't have to be that. You can be jealous of somebody's relationship, can't you? You know, oh, they've, got a, they've got a boyfriend, they've got a fiance, they've got a girlfriend, they're married, and I'm not. You know, I've, I've had friends that, that was, became a real serious point of contention in our friendship because they couldn't handle that I had something that they didn't. It can be a relationship, it can be status, it can be something that you tried for and they succeeded at, but you failed at. Even if you, isn't it the worst? I'm, I was a musician, I'm a musician still, I guess, but you know, when I'll work super, super hard to get good at playing something on guitar or singing something, and then you hand the guitar to somebody else and it's like 10 minutes later and they're doing as good as I did after like weeks of practice, man, it just, it'll eat away at you. Or like when you invite somebody to be a part of something that you really enjoy and they're immediately better than you at it without even trying. That, I mean, this is kind of funny, right? But that can really grow up into bitterness, especially if it's somebody that you have to see all the time and you're reminded of it a lot. Brothers and sisters especially can get really, really bad with this. When somebody succeeds where you failed, when you know that you could have done what they did. That's the thing with Cain. Cain knew that not, it wasn't that Abel was so much better than him. He could have had what Abel had, but he didn't. And I think that's what got to him. He knows that he could have been accepted, but he wasn't. And that's hard. When you see somebody succeeding where you could have done what they were doing, when you could have had what somebody had, and rather than saying, all right, you know what? We're going to get down to business. We're going to buckle down. We're going to finish. We're going to do this well. I'm a little behind, but hey, I'm going to catch up. That's the right attitude. The wrong attitude says, I wonder if I can ruin this for them. Or you, you, you change the things that you're interested in because somebody else is better at it than you. There's always going to be somebody better at it than you. Always. Especially if you're into anything creative or athletic. <laughs> it's just, it's the case, right? Don't do that. That way lies death. That's what happened. Bitterness grew up. Resentment grew up in Cain's heart, and it culminated in death. So what do you do? There's, there's two things here that you need to do. Number one, you have to take responsibility for yourself. What God is telling Cain to do is, Cain, get your act together, man. It's not fair because he's accepted. Like, he, like he's better than me. Well, he's certainly done better than you, Cain. Get, get it together. You can do this. That's taking responsibility for yourself. 
It's what a good parent or a good mentor in your life, good friends will do. They'll encourage you to take responsibility for yourself, not just say, oh, he was a jerk. She's no good. What do you care about that anyway? And help you go through the sour grapes thing or you know, help you do something destructive to get over your negative emotion rather than just handling yourself. Take responsibility. Don't just try and eliminate the standard. Ah, who cares anyway? And number two, love the people that are around you like brothers and sisters. Because guys, that's what we are. We're brothers and sisters. We're supposed to love each other. Cain is supposed to love his brother. And the Lord said, Cain, where's your brother? And it's got that phrase that just kind of chills your bones a little bit. Where he says, the blood of your brother cries out to me from the ground. And Cain goes, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? What am I, am I his babysitter now? I'm supposed to take care of him? But of course, the, the irony there is, yeah, Cain, he's your brother. You're supposed to take care of him. Not like you're to babysit him, but you're supposed to love him. He was the opposite of what a brother should have been. And we're brothers and sisters to each other. Love each other. Rejoice in each other's successes. Right? Don't, don't think, be, you know, make other people around you have to be miserable for things that they're excited about because you're jealous. Don't do that. You, you, you've been trying for something and you don't get it, but somebody else in your life gets it. They're super pumped up about it. Don't get mad at them for rubbing it in my face. They're excited like you would have been excited. So be a good brother or sister and rejoice with them. And don't rub it in each other's face either, but that's, uh, that's another Bible study. And John throws in verse 13, this little reminder. Is Cain hated Abel because Abel's deeds were righteous and his were, were wicked. And he says, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Like, guys, this has been going on since the beginning. It's that same resentment that possessed Cain is what causes the world to hate believers. You notice the world doesn't really have a problem with lukewarm, half-hearted Christians. They don't really care. They're fine with that, you know, but they don't like the ones that take it seriously. Why? John 3, verse 19 through 20. This is the judgment. This is the condemnation. Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. The minute there is a righteous standard introduced into the conversation, you can see where you stand. Cain could have maybe duped himself into thinking he was all right. He was just as good as Abel. But as soon as he stood before the judge of all the earth, it was very clear. We can say, I'm as good as anybody else. But then the light of the gospel comes in. And this is what causes the world to hate us. They would rather destroy what is good than come to receive salvation. They'd rather, rather than admit their own failure, they would rather destroy the standard completely. Rather than admitting that they've failed, they want to say there's no such thing as failure. And by the light of your life, you shine that light on the world around you. But we are not to be ruled by resentment or bitterness or jealousy or hate. We're to walk in love towards one another, even to the point of suffering like Christ did. So he's saying, to be a believer, we love each other. We're not like Cain. We're not going to be like that. We don't hate our brothers. We love our brothers. And so he moves into verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
So hate and resentment. I love thinking of it this way because we think eternal life and eternal death in terms of uh, eschatology, right? Heaven and hell. That is absolutely true. I'm not taken away from that. But there's also like a here and now application to that, that a life of hatred and bitterness, just it brings death. It poisons and kills everything worth living for around you. But when you're walking in love, it just brings life to everything and it makes life better and worth living for. And he's saying, so not only have we passed from death to life, meaning we're no longer destined for hell, but now we're destined for heaven. Our lives are no longer bringing death and despair and decay to those around us, but we're bringing love and life and hope and light to the world. And we know this how? Because we're walking in love towards our brothers. You know, resentment, bitterness, these murderous attitudes, they're not found in us. We don't live that way. We love one another. And he's making this contrast between Christians and the world. The difference is love. We've talked about this before, so I'm not going to get into it too far. But how can you say that your life has been radically changed by the love of God, and yet you don't love anybody else? (laughs) Remember what Jesus said? He says, if you only love those who love you, don't even pagans do that? Everybody loves their mama, right? It's that line from 310 to Yuma. Even bad men love their mamas, right? You're not doing anything great by saying, oh, yes, I love the people who love me. He says, no, love your enemies. That's the love of God. And verse 15 has a very strong word, right, for, for those who are going to live that way. All right? He says, whoever does not love abides in death, and everyone who hates his brother is a what? A murderer. Man, <laughs> hatred is as bad as murder. You can't excuse yourself by saying, well, I never acted on it. Well, yeah, I thought about it. I, I laughed at it. I planned it. I wrote about it. I t- talked to people about it. I daydreamed about it, but I never did it. The Lord's like, it's the same thing. It's the same root that grew up in your heart. Maybe you just never had the opportunity to act on it. Maybe you were, you were acting selfishly and preserving yourself and not acting on it. He says, don't do that. You can't excuse yourself. This is what Jesus said, right? Matthew 5, 21 through 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Yes, absolutely. We all agree with that. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So we think, oh yes, hating people is the same as murder. But Jesus also says, insulting people, cursing people out, being angry with people, it's the same thing. It's intense stuff. You're like, that's not fair. That doesn't seem right. But here's the deal. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart because that's where righteousness and iniquity dwell. That's why Jesus was saying, yeah, they, they picked a little grain on the Sabbath. That's not the point. So it's not what goes into your body that defiles you. It's what comes out of your body. It's what's in your heart that defiles you. So if murderous resentment lives inside of you, you're guilty of the same sin as a murderer. And nobody's going to argue that murderers are children of life. <laughs> and that's the exact opposite is true, right? So if you're a serial killer, it's obvious that you do not have Jesus in your heart. Everyone's going to go, yeah, okay, sure. But he would say, if you harbor hatred and anger towards people in your heart, you are not a believer. Well, I mean, mean, people got to work through their issues, you know. It's like, okay, you're missing what the Bible is saying here, man. He says, your heart matters. 
Jesus didn't relax the commandments of the law. He intensified them. He said, no, it's not just enough not to kill somebody. You've got murder in your heart, but I'll never do it. It's the same thing. And this is what John is saying here too. We love people. If you don't love, you abide, you remain in death. Even if you're not actually murdering anybody physically, we're passing from the life of death to a life of life. John 5, 24, Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And we know that we've passed from death to life when we begin to forgive and love people. Resentment is poisonous, you guys. It will wreck your life. Even if the, per the person can be dead, the person can be long out of your life, a boyfriend or girlfriend that hurt you really bad when you were a kid, a mom or a dad or a relative who did something, even, even if it's sm something small, but just it still eats away at your soul, a brother or a sister, a friend, a teacher, a pastor who hurt you. You can't live in resentment, guys, because you're going to start to bring that life of death to people around you. You're going to start to live it out. You get sarcastic with people. You get snarky with people. You don't want to see people get happy. You can't stand to see that person succeed, so you start plotting how you can ruin it for them. That's what resentment does. But when you have received the love of God, you give love to other people, and it sets them free. Love changes people. Not just, you know, I'm in love and now I'm, I've been changed. No, when you show love to somebody else, especially someone who don't deserve it, that's when you begin to see people's lives transformed. It's amazing, you guys. The older I get and the longer I do ministry, this, this, the, <laughs> the message that brings grown men and women to tears more than anything else Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Praying with people, and they've got it all together, and they're, everything is put together and fine and nice. And, you know, uh, just recently I was praying for somebody, and, and everything was okay. It was fine. And the Lord has prompted me just to tell them, God loves you. Yeah, yeah no, no, no. God loves you. And it's just somebody, they've been a believer for a very long time, but still having to learn that love and it just sank into their heart and you see the freedom and the release that comes in that moment. You can do that for other people in your life, living out the love of Jesus towards each other. It's really, really hard to love resentful people too. When somebody just spits it right back in your face and you try and show them love, like Paul writes in 2 Corinthians when he says, the more I love you, the less I am loved. Especially, you know, I think of parents with their kids or kids with their parents. You're trying to show them love and maybe they've been hurt or they've been envious and they've been bitter and they slap it down and they slap it down and they slap it down. But Jesus didn't give up on you. And if you're thinking Jesus has, you're wrong. He hasn't. He still loves you. Show that love to other people. Don't mess around with unforgiveness. Well, when they apologize, I'll forgive them. No, no. That's, did God do that with you? He sent his son to die on the cross for you. He didn't show hate towards you. While you were a sinner, Christ died for you. That's so awesome. That's why we walk in love towards all people. Our lives are to be characterized by life. We're cultivating God's garden, bringing life, improving people's life, making life worth living for people around you. The, maybe the interactions they have with you are the one little bit of sunshine they get in their whole life. 
When you're working the checkout counter at wherever you work or when you're working uh, at a job or you're helping somebody in their yard every now and then and, you know, it's like, man, they, I, I used to have this when I worked at Ruby Tuesday or when I worked other places. Like, they always wanna want my table and they're these really, really grumpy people. <laughs> they don't wanna talk. They don't wanna, you know, they just wanna come in and I'm just nice as can be. And then after like a couple months, someday comes and they drop like a $50 tip and they say something like, you just have been, you're so great and I love coming in. I love being around you. It's like, you have no idea, man. The love of God that shines through you in your life but I'm the one that needs love right now. That might be true, but stop looking at yourself. You're going to get miserable, <laughs> right? You know yourself better than anybody else. You can see all the ins and outs, man. Just start loving other people. Start loving other people. Hate <clears throat> brings only death. Verse 16. Well, how do I know what love looks like? What is love anyway? I mean, who can define what love is? I want to know what love is, right? <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, it's in the Bible. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If Cain is our example of how resentment and hate bring death, Jesus Christ is our example of how love produces life. Everyone's got their own definition of love, and it's usually a self-serving definition of love. Nobody ever describes love in a way that makes them look bad, right? It's, it's like, if you really loved me, you would. If you really cared about me, you would. Hey, that's not what love is. Love is the thing that I just did. <laughs> don't try and put limits on my love, man. Ridiculous, right? I don't see how you can let a ring and a piece of paper tell you how to love somebody. It's like, so you're afraid to commit yourself to the person you love? Well, yeah, I, just, I would never hold on to somebody. It's like, okay, run away from that person, okay? All right? What is love? Love is sacrifice. You look for God. We're going to see next week, 1 John 4, 8. God is love. Let God tell you what love is like. Jesus said in John 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't pick romantic love? I'm not going to dive too far into that, but isn't that interesting? Just something to, to ponder and think about. You almost think of like the comrade brother in arms kind of thing, right? Laying down your life for your friends. And of course, Jesus laid down his life for us. He died on the cross, paying the penalty for sins that he did not commit, that you deserved. Why? So that you could have life. That's true love. That is love. That you lay down your lives for each other, to live and die as Jesus did. Now, this is not just talking about dying for each other, right? We live in a very nonviolent society. The likelihood that we'll have to die physically for each other is pretty slim. Around the world, maybe it's a little higher. But it's not just dying for each other. It's living for each other. Not just being focused on your own business all the time. This is such a problem, man, with Really, I mean, any wealthy society, and make no mistake, we are a wealthy society where, you know, you're not desperate anymore. You don't physically need anybody anymore. And you just start to get selfish. You start to say, I don't need anybody else. Nobody else needs me. No, it's not right, though. It's living for each other. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, check this out, count others 
more significant than yourselves. But I'm the protagonist of this novel. No, no, no. He says, treat everybody else like they're Frodo and you're Sam, okay? That you are living for them. You are doing everything you can and giving up everything so that they can succeed in what they're going to do. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Isn't it unfortunate how often the thing that keeps us from tangibly loving each other is inconvenience? It's inconvenient to take that phone call in the middle of the night. It's inconvenient to show up at 7 in the morning and help somebody move. It's inconvenient to stay late after church because somebody's having a rough time. Right? It's in, it, that's a shame. It's tough to love others. In fact, it's death to love others. You are dying to the life that you could have for somebody else. But how else are you supposed to live and call yourself a Christian? Christian, you are like Jesus Christ who gave up his life for you. So to be a Christian is to give up your life for other people. But what about all my dreams and goals and ambitions that my high school guidance counselor talked about? Do nothing from selfish ambition. But in humility, count others as more important, more significant than yourselves. <laughs> Jesus Christ is the standard for love. That's what we see in verse 16. You don't grade on a curve, you know. Well, I'm more loving than all these people, so it rounds up to a B+. Yeah, that doesn't work. <laughs> you don't want a surgeon who was graded on a curve, right? Right? So I'm going to do surgery on you. Uh, on the curve, I got a B- minus in all my classes. So I don't want a B- minus doctor. I want an A-plus doctor, right? I don't need no so-so mediocre thing going on, right? We don't grade love on a curve either. You, you, <laughs> Jesus Christ wrecks the curve because he got a perfect score. That's the standard. It's not good enough to be good enough. Well, I, 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 if you're still telling stories about how you loved somebody in a really cool way like five years ago, it's time to get some new stories, right? About the person you, you loved five minutes ago or today, right? And whether or not you should be telling stories about how loving you are is, is another thing. But um, <laughs> we'll say it's a testimony and that'll be all right then. You be Christ-like, you guys, because in verse 17 and 18 it says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's easy to claim Christianity. I love like Jesus loves. Or you hear messages like this and you nod your head. You're like, yeah, absolutely. I know some people who need to hear this. I'm going to send them a tape of this or a CD, I guess. It's got to translate to action. John is echoing the words of James and of Jesus here when he makes this statement. He's like, if you see someone who's in need of help, someone who's in need of love, and you withhold it from them, how are you saved? How can you call yourself a Christian if every time you are given the opportunity to die for somebody else, you say, no, thank you? That's intense stuff. James 2, 15 through 16, James says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Well, I, tw I tweeted a thing on, online, or I, I posted a hashtag, or I, re I reposted this thing that, about how much I care for poor people. What good is that? It doesn't help anybody. 
<laughs> makes you feel good, maybe. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10? We're not going to turn there, but you guys know the story. The question that launched that parable was, who is my neighbor? I'm supposed to love my neighbor. It's such a theologian's question. I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but who qualifies as my neighbor? It's a mystery. And you can define that question to be, well, I don't have to love everybody, just my neighbors. And Jesus is like, okay, let me tell you a story. And the story goes away. Who was the neighbor? The Samaritan. Being a neighbor is not looking at the list of people that qualify as neighbor. It's that you are a walking neighbor to everybody you run into. You're loving everybody. The one we come across who's in need. Remember the, the man was beaten and lying on the road and the priest walks by and he crosses by on the other side of the road. And then the Levite walks by and he crosses by on the other side of the road. Then the Samaritan shows up. You want to make this like real, like get this real for a second? So there was a Christian who was leaving Liberty University. They were walking back to their dorm and they got beat up and bloodied. And then a prayer leader walked by and crossed over on the other side. And then a pastor came by and he crossed by on the other side. And then the local imam from the mosque walked by and took care of this man and put him, on, put him in his car and drove him to the hospital and paid for all of his bills. You go, ugh, I don't like that because then that, that's not good because the Christians are the... That's how Jesus is telling the story. Or like the rabid atheist who hates Christians and posts weird stuff on Facebook all the time, right? That guy. He says, it's not your status as a person. It's what are you doing, man? Are you going out there and loving people? This is why some people, by the way, this is why some people resent it when you say you're going to pray for them. Because we see prayer as our escape to not do anything physical. I'm just having a really hard time paying my rent, man. Oh, dude, I'm going to pray for you. I'll take, you know, 10 number fours and a large Coke. And you just, you know, <laughs> you, you proceed to spend a lot of money when the person right there has just told you that they're having trouble with stuff. Love each other physically, you guys. Pray. Yes, pray. Prayer changes things, okay? I'm not arguing against that. I'm saying pray and pray and then get up and do. Lord, provide for them. All right, how's my bank account looking? What could we do, Lord? I could get by with just this, you know, and, well, I need to be financially responsible. No, you need to be obedient is what you need to do, okay? Because he says, if you have the world's goods, Greek here is ton bion to kosmu. Bion is where we get our word for biology or biology, right? The word for life. So he says, if you have the life of the world, Meaning, if you got all the stuff that you need to live, he's not talking about being wealthy. He's saying, if you just got what you need and you close off your heart, you know something gross? The word for heart there in, in Greek is splunkna. It means bowels. And how we, we, we picked the organ heart to represent our emotions. They picked the intestines. So one organ's as good as another, I guess, but just a little interesting note there. So he says, if you close off your bowels from somebody, it's like, okay. So we say hearts, but just interesting thing. But he says, if you've got everything you need and you see somebody who needs help and you don't help them, you're a hypocrite and you're not a believer. Man, that's intense, isn't it? Well, I don't have a lot of stuff. Well, what do you have? Do you have money? Do you have extra money? Well, yeah, but I need it for some things. Okay, fair enough. How about setting aside some just to have ready just in case? Here's a really cool idea that Kat and I have always wanted to do, but we never got around to actually doing. Maybe this will give me the fire that I need. Just... I don't, you know, whatever job you have, maybe you don't make a lot of money, but just slowly set aside enough until you've got $100 in $10 bills. Carry that around with you for the sole purpose of using to help other people. 
just just have and then when you when you spend some you fill it up again the next time you get paid that's a pretty cool idea right i got you just got i've got 10 tens in my wallet hey man can i get some change well he's probably going to scam me yeah but jesus also said to give to those who are asking right say hey look i'm going to give you this ten dollar bill can i pray for you and tell you about jesus you know you run into a friend who's you know they run out of gas go show up pay for their gas right you got money well money's really tight for me i can't do that okay fine forget money how about food do you have food in your house some people's houses, there's, you know, a pile of ingredients and it's not really food yet, but, you know, somebody talented could maybe make it into food. Can you feed people? Somebody who needs help? What about a room? Do you have a room in your house? You got like three extra rooms for your, one for your plants and one for your books and one for your TVs and one for your old digital cameras with all your pictures on it, right? Can, and people need help? Can you, can you give your room to somebody else? But then it'd be a stranger living in my house. Yeah, the Bible talks an awful lot about that, actually, about doing that. How about a car? Can you give people a ride? Gas money, though. God will provide for you, right? Use your car. How many extra seats do you have? How many sinners can you fill up that car with and bring to church every week? How about, I don't have any of that. Well, do you have time? Can you spend time with people? If I don't leave church right away, I'll hit traffic. Yeah, but there are people inside who are hurting and need Jesus. There are people who come to church like once every couple of years because they've hit rock bottom and they just need to talk to somebody. And they don't know what to do. And they just sit there in the pews and just kind of wait. Just stop and look and say, who needs to be talked to today? Right? What about kind words? Do you have those? Can you be kind to people? Can you be nice? The person when you're out and you just, you just know. You're, you're ever out and you meet like those people. And it's very obvious that they're just alone. And they just go to public places just to strike up conversations and talk to people. Talk to those people. Yeah, they're weird. Yeah, so what? Show them the love of Jesus. Jesus had a lot of weird people following him. He called some of his disciples, didn't he? You owe these things as a Christian to people who are in need. Well, I never come across anyone in need. Okay, then you have another problem. You need to go find some people. First of all, just open up your eyes because they're there. Okay? Talk to people at church. Find out. Talk to them long enough to get to know them well enough that they're willing to let you know what's going on. Okay? We've got this American independence thing. It served us well in a lot of ways, but it does make us to be the kind of people who resent asking for help. So you got to be loving enough to somebody that you're laying a foundation for the, being able to help them in the future. Right? Talk to people. Be When you're out, talk to people. We live in Virginia. It's easy to talk to people. And, and you, you can know someone's whole life story in the name of all their grandkids in like the five seconds you're in the checkout line somewhere. It's fun. I love doing it. It's, sometimes I'm not in the mood. Maybe I should get over that. But it's really fun to do that. It's even more fun down in Alabama. <laughs> Just like the farther south you go, the more intense that instinct to talk to strangers gets. It's wonderful. Just think about who can I help? Who in my life needs some help? Well, I need some help. Well, go find some people and start talking to them and, and open up yourself to the Lord. Why not start here at this meeting? There's not that many of us here because it's the summertime. So these should be your best friends. I don't know them very well. Well, get to know them well enough to help them. Don't just talk about love. Be a lover of people. You have the chance to bring life to somebody. How many of you guys have read or seen or watched Les Miserables before? Right? At the very beginning of the story, you've got Jean Valjean, who's been a criminal, spent decades in, in hard forced labor, turned into a very hard, cynical man. He leaves. He stays the night in the house of this priest who takes, you know, takes him in for the night, steals all his stuff, rips him off, goes away, gets caught, comes back. 
and he had lied and told the, the soldiers, no, he gave me all of his you know, riches that I stole in this bag, right? And they come back and like, yeah, he said you gave him this. And he's like, yeah, I did give him that. You can let him go. He didn't steal anything. And he tells him, he's like, listen, I just saved your life. Now you have to use all this stuff that you just stole from me for good. Come, come up with a new life for yourself. And that moment changed the entire trajectory of his life. That's a fake story. But it's true because that can happen and you can be that for somebody else, right? Or you can bring death through resentment and selfishness. But if you're a true Christian, you're going to do the first thing, right? Show love to people. Not in just in talking about it, but actually doing it. Because he gets into verse 19, and this kind of moves into a different topic, but it's connected. Verse 19, he says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. And then he gets into this verse, which I love. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. This is one of the most comforting passages in the whole Bible. It's got its teeth, which is really just, this is how God is, right? It's like Aslan. He's not, he's not safe, but he's good, right? I love this. So I recommend returning to these verses often. He says, by this, meaning living out a life of love, by this, we know that we are of the truth, okay? And this is what gives us assurance of salvation when we're living out those lives of love, okay? This is consistent with what we've read so far. We've talked about this a couple of times. Obedience to the commandments of God assure us that we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit because you can't see salvation, right? It's not like you have a little halo floating over your head and that's how you know you're saved. It's internal. It's like, how do I know? We're like, well, are you living out what Jesus told you to do? Is life coming out of your life? Then that's how you know. Then in verse 20, he makes an important point. Because it, it's almost a parenthesis, not really, but it kind of is. He says, this will reassure our hearts. And he kind of says, and you know what? Sometimes our hearts need reassuring. Can anybody say amen to that? Sometimes you need that reassurance. Because your heart, he said, when your heart condemns us, your heart is untrustworthy. Your heart will condemn us when you do not deserve to be condemned. I always deserve to be condemned. No, no, you don't. Right? Romans 7, 24. You ever felt this way? Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? You ever sinned again? And there's that clarity that comes right after you do something stupid. You're like, what is wrong with me? Lord, what is going on? I'm such a terrible, terrible person. If you spend too much time thinking about it, you're going to get stuck there. You can, if you want to think of reasons why you shouldn't be saved, you will always find them. Okay? Always. 100% of the time. You can come up with reasons why you ought to be condemned. But you have to move past Romans 7.24 into Romans 7.25 and into chapter 8, verse 1, where he says, Who will deliver me? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not just a, no, who will deliver me? No, I know who will deliver me. It's Jesus. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Paul is just owning. Look, it's a struggle. I admit that it's a struggle. But because of Jesus Christ, he can say in verse one of chapter eight, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have to come to that conclusion where you're trusting the work of Jesus on the cross and not your own heart. Lots of dopey, pop songs that tell you to trust your heart written by people who've been divorced five times and have estranged children i just follow my heart all the time and good for you 
kind of like in Napoleon Dynamite, right? He says, just follow your heart. That's what I do. Like, I, and I want to be just like you. Thank you for that. Don't trust your heart. You're, think, of, think back to like five years ago or ten years ago and think of the things that you wanted more than anything else or the people that you had a crush on more than anyone else. Imagine if you had gotten everything you wanted. A bunch of you just grimaced at me. That was wonderful. Like, yeah, ugh. no, <laughs> I don't think so. I would not have wanted that. There, or what you thought you wanted to be when you grew up and you look back on it and you're like, I'm so glad I didn't do that. <laughs> I'm so glad I did not drive out to Nashville, quit my job, and try and become a singer <laughs> or whatever your thing is. Don't trust your heart, especially when it comes to your own self-condemnation. Because there's only two options. Number one, you become really arrogant and you think that everything's great and then God's got to break you down, right? He's like a donkey with bit and bridle. Or, I'm no good. I've never been any good. Here's a list of things that I've done. I'm a terrible person. This is my sin resume. And, uh, yeah, I, I deserve judgment. I can't worship. I can't pray. If I do, God will be there ready to condemn me. No. But that's what my heart says, and I just I feel it so deeply. God is greater than your heart. Trust what God has said. His word is greater than your best sense of, how am I doing? And, and like you're up and you're down with the Lord based on how many times you sinned that day. And then you get to a place where you don't know how to pray unless you're, you're really sorry for something. Or you can't worship in church unless you're breaking down crying about something. And you don't know how to celebrate. You don't know how to just have a normal Christian life. Because you, you're expecting something that you shouldn't expect. But I need to make sure that God accepts me. God has already accepted you. He already sent his son to die on the cross for you. His son already rose from the dead. He's already sent you his Holy Spirit. And now you've got this really hypersensitive conscience, courtesy of the Holy Spirit, that he's hoping to bring under control. But you've got to acknowledge that sometimes your heart is going to get twisted around and you need God to come and affirm you through the fruit in your life and the word of Jesus. Hey, don't let yourself feel spiritual for moping around and hating your life. Like that's somehow pleasing to the Lord. It's not. Is that what Jesus died for? To create a bunch of miserable people that... All they do is weep and cry and moan and, you know, walk around. It's kind of like, oh, God, don't smite me. Don't let me die today. It's like, what difference does it make? I'm, st I'm still your savior, aren't I? Yes, but look at all the terrible things I've done. They go, I, right here, he's saying, look at all the fruit in your life. Look at all the good things that are coming out of your life. Yeah, but it's not enough to tip the scales of justice. You're never going to tip the scales of justice because sin weighs 10 billion pounds and your good works weigh like five ounces. It's never going to work. But the work of Jesus is greater than all these things, right? Don't let yourself fret. That's, that's the work. Remember we talked about this? That's the work of the accuser, not the advocate. But I know the voice of the Lord, and God's voice has been telling me that I'm in sin, and, and he's almost done with me. Apparently, you don't know the voice of the Lord. And when you're having questions, you go back to the written voice of the Lord where it tells you God's greater than your heart, and sometimes your heart's going to condemn you. So don't focus on what your heart says. Focus on what the Word says, right? And Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I mean, you wake up in the morning and you say, no matter what happens today, 
I am seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. Is it okay to get bummed out when you sin? Yeah. But the mark of a righteous man is not that he never stumbles, that he stumbles and he gets back up and keeps going. Why was David a man after God's own heart? Because he never sinned? No. Because when he sinned, he said, forgive me, Lord. And he had that Psalm 51 penitence. And he's like, that's all it takes, David. After everything David did with Bathsheba and Uriah and everything that went down and Joab and that battle and all that stuff and that terrible thing that went on for years, the lie that he carried, Nathan comes, sticks a finger in his face and, and confronts him on it. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And the next word out of Nathan's mouth was, the Lord has forgiven you. That fast. That's even pre-cross, guys. The Lord has forgiven you. What, that's it? No, there were consequences to what he did, but that wasn't God inflicting judgment. That was God saying, David, this is why I told you not to do this stuff, man. You just wrecked your family. But I'm with you now, so we'll walk through it together. So don't, don't focus on your sin, because God's not, okay? Verse 21 and 22, If, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him. Whew, I love that. Underline that. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Now, when it says whatever, it doesn't mean that you can pray for a second moon and God will give you. Well, of course not. No one thinks that. Just let it soak in a minute. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Do you realize that God wants you to have confidence before him? He wants you to be assured. He wants you to be secure in your salvation. John is writing in these verses about the state that we ought to be in as believers. And it's a state of power and confidence, not of fear and weakness. Think about Jesus. Jesus was in control. It's like, Peter, I could call down legions of angels. I have like armies ready to go when I say, here boy. All right? I don't need this. He was in a state of power. He received everything he asked for from the Father. That's what God has for you. That's why Jesus in John 14, 15, 16, 17, he's talking over and over again. Hey guys, guess what? I'm about to open up prayer to you guys. You know how God always gives me what I ask for? I'm going to give that to you. And he keeps bringing them back to that. Why? Because he knew that we'd have a hard time believing it. Hebrews 4, 16, God wants us to approach the throne of grace with confidence. Not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in the advocate Jesus Christ. Wasn't that arrogant? No, not if you're trusting in what Jesus has done. He, God wants to answer your prayers. Why? Because as we talked about, if you're walking in love, if you're walking in his commandments, you're doing his will, you're living out his plan for the world, you're living a life of love that brings life to people around you, why wouldn't God want to support that? Chronicles 16.9, he says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for someone on whose behalf he can show himself strong, whose heart is upright towards him. God's looking for people that he can do great things through. Why not you? Live that life out. This is why he's like, look, I want you to get th this condemnation thing under control because if you're living in constant condemnation, you're going to be afraid to come and pray. And he doesn't want you to be afraid to pray because he's got work for you to do. He wants you to get out and work and then support you in that work. This is why you got to learn to strengthen yourself in the Lord and let your heart be in submission to his word because you got work to do. You got people to love. You got lives to change. You got souls to transform. And God's like, let's get this 
silly condemnation stuff out of the way. I love you. I've always loved you. You belong to me in Christ Jesus. Now let's get out there and love some people. And if you need anything, just ask. I'll send it your way. And the thing is, the devil knows that an assured believer is deadly to his false kingdom. So what's he going to do? He's going to try and pull the plug on your prayer life. If he knows you have a direct supply line to heaven, but if you don't pray, you'll be alone. So what does he do? He tries to keep you from praying. How? One of the ways, by getting you so focused on your own sin that you're afraid to pray. You just want to stir up those thoughts in your mind. Look at, he's like, look at what you've done. And you're like, and? Look at what Jesus has done. I, I, I don't think you have any place here any longer, Mr. Satan. Get out of here. You guys read Pilgrim's Progress before? You should if you haven't. He shows up, remember, he's, he shows up before Apollyon, and Apollyon runs down this long list of sins that he's committed. He says, I am these things and much more. He just throws it and says, yeah, and you know what? You left out some stuff too. But guess what? It's not about me. It's about what Jesus has done. That's freedom that you can't buy, folks. When you know that Jesus is enough and he's opened up the gates of heaven, Satan's going to try and make you afraid to pray. You go and you keep coming to the Lord. The enemy's already been defeated. This is why he's like, hey, don't trust your heart. Trust his word. Trust the gospel. Trust the cross. And we wrap it up, verse 23 and 24. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. Now you might be sitting there thinking, yeah, he gives us all things because we, do, we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. But I don't keep his commandments. I can't be assured because I'm not good enough. If that's how you read this passage, man, you're missing it. Remember how John keeps coming back and he, he's talking about all the things that if you do, you're not, you're not with the Lord. But he keeps coming back and saying, but I'm not talking about you guys. I'm talking about the antichrists. I'm talking about the, the children of the devil, which you are not. And the second thing, let us ask, what is the commandment that you have to keep? I'm not keeping his commandments. Well, there's only one he tells you to keep. What is it? Believe on the Lord Jesus and love the brethren. We already talked about this in Matthew 22, right? Love God and love people. John 6, 28 and 29, they said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. They all get out their pen and paper. What is it? He says that you believe in him whom he has sent. I'm not doing the works of Jesus. Okay, let me ask you this. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do you worship him as Lord? Do you believe that his death on the cross is the only means of salvation? Then that's enough. That's it. That's all God requires of you. What about loving others? You're already loving others. You're feeling bad because you don't love people enough. I mean, that's, that's something, isn't it? That's the natural outworking of the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm not doing as good as I should. Okay, do better. You got tomorrow, as far as we know, if the Lord doesn't come back, get out and do better. That's all God asks. Don't think you've always got to be doing more. Because if you think you've always got to be doing more, you'll never be able to look back and give God praise for what he's already done in your life. Because you're never going to think it's good enough. I've known people who have prayed for folks and have seen miracles happen and led people to Jesus. And like the way they talk about it, it's almost like they failed. I shared the gospel with people and only five people got saved and only one was raised from the dead. It's like, wait, what'd you just say? 
But just my heart, though, is like, okay, I think you need to chill out, right? This is why we need people in church, by the way, right? I just don't see any fruit in my, in my life. Uh-huh, I do. Really, you do? Yes, that's why we have each other, right? Just do better. But I need to do more. That's not the voice of God. Ignore that. That's the enemy. If you love others and you believe in Jesus Christ, then you abide in God and God abides in you. Don't let your heart condemn you when God has not condemned you. Because you are accepted in the beloved. You are free now to live a life of love. And here's the thing. You're not supposed to live a life of love under compulsion. Like if I don't love people enough, God's going to send me to hell. What is that? That's not love. What is that? That's like the DMV. I have to do these things for you because the government makes me. That's not what God has for us. Because Jesus loved you so much, that love overflows to other people. When we go down to Nepal, you can tell which houses are the Christian houses and which ones are not. Because the, the, the ideology, the religion of karma has beaten people down into believing that you cannot change your life. So why clean the yard? Why shoo the chickens out? Why fix that wall? Why get our kids to the doctor? This is the way the gods want it. But when the message of Jesus comes into someone's life, it changes everything. Everything is different. Even the way they keep their house and dress and smile. That's because that the love of God has come and brought life to their life. That's what's happened to you. Now you go out and do that for other people. That's what God has given you to do. Not because you have to, because you get to. Don't you want to share that with other people? I have a hard time because, and I'll end with this. You know, if I find something that I like, I have to have my wife do it. Like if I, if I make the burger a certain way and it's really good, I'm like, you have to try this. I don't want to try that, but you have, but you have to try it. I made it, though, and you will really like it. Or if I see a movie that I really like, or, you know, I'm, I'm just now getting over this one. I mean, guys and girls' movies are very different, right? I'm like, you was awesome, and then they all charged, and they were all killed, but it was a glorious battle. And she's like, I don't want to watch that. I'm like, but it's my favorite thing, and you'd like it, right? Now, as in marriage, I've had, we've had to learn just to, you know, she has her things, and I have my things when it comes to certain stuff, right? She doesn't have to, you know, cook her burgers the same way that I do, right? But there's that attitude that says, I'm so happy about this, I want other people to have it too. That's the attitude that God has for your life. He says, isn't this great? Go do that for somebody else. That, that freedom that you have, because I don't condemn you, go tell other people about that. Because they're stuck like you were stuck. And I want to set them free too. Because the love of God has brought life to you, and so your life should be bringing love to other people.